I'm going to jump into the Word this morning. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 20. I want to just read something from this passage. We have been just talking a lot about our hearts this week. We've been focusing on prayer and being with God. And this is something that God has stirred in my heart that I really want to share for all of us here as believers, for our church. And I pray that you will allow the Holy Spirit to bring this to your heart. Second Kings 20, King Hezekiah is faced with a deadly illness. And it's prophesied to him that he's going to die. When he receives this word from the Lord, he begins to cry out to God for the Lord to spare his life and that he would not die. And God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and returns him back to Hezekiah and says that the Lord's heard your prayers and God is going to extend your life for 15 years. And Hezekiah asks for a sign from God, you know, and he tells Isaiah, you know, some of these things that could happen could be coincidental. But if the Lord were to make the sundial go backwards, then truly that would be a miracle of God. So let the sun go backwards, and it's granted to him. God said, I'll do it, and makes the whole universe just reverse. It's absolutely incredible. And when some of the kingdoms, surrounding kingdoms here that Hezekiah's life has been spared, um, they send a delegation of men, and they come, and this is in verse 12, and They come from Babylon and they sent letters and presents to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things in verse 13. He showed them his silver, his gold, the spices, the precious ointments, the armor. He showed them all of these things that was in his dominion. And then, then Isaiah comes back to Hezekiah and he said, who are these guys and what did they say to you and what did you do? And in verse 15, it says this, he said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah responds, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And then Isaiah gives Hezekiah a prophecy of destruction. And he says to Hezekiah that this nation, Babylon, is going to invade you. And they're going to plunder you. They're going to plunder all of these things that you have shown them. And they're going to take that to themselves. And it's going to be very bad for your descendants. It's going to be very bad for your children. And Hezekiah makes this comment, verse 19, I find it somewhat surprising. He said to Isaiah, good is the word of the Lord which you have spoken. And he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? It's almost like he didn't really care what's going to happen to his children. As long as he had peace and he would be able to die in peace. I think that's something that has really characterized the attitude of Americans for the last many decades, if not longer. And it's certainly been that which has characterized the attitude in the church. 
It seems to be such a self-interest, such a self-promotion. You know, what, what can we do that at least will be good for us? We are right now as a nation incurring a national debt that we are passing on to the generations they have no ability to pay for. But it's like, we don't care. Just let it be good for us. And it seems to be that attitude that even Hezekiah had. It's an attitude that comes on the hills of great judgment. It's an attitude that comes on the hills of devastation in the near future, even to the next descendants that are going to rise up. I believe that's what's facing America right now. And I pray that we would have a different attitude than Hezekiah's. And I pray that we would have an attitude that would begin to sweep across America that would be one of repentance. And that we would ask the Lord to help us to be able to change our course so that it will go well for our descendants. Hezekiah did not do that. There's an accompanying passage in 2 Chronicles. And I want you to look at this with me in verse in chapter 32. This is... Again, the story, but in the Chronicles, it gives us just a little bit more insight. And this is in verse 25. And it says, Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done to him. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. So when God spared Hezekiah's life, instead of Hezekiah rendering to God what he should have rendered to him, he didn't. Because he was full of pride, he took things to himself, and that incurred God's wrath against his life. This is interesting, verse 26. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beast and coats for flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much. And then it talks about some of the aqueducts that Hezekiah would create. And I thought about this as the word of the Lord came to Hezekiah, and God said to him that the judgment of God is going to come upon your children, and it's not going to come upon you. There's going to be peace in your day. And I saw all of these things that Hezekiah had laid up in store for himself and for his country. These vast riches, these, these emblems of prosperity, the gold, the silver, the ointments, the spices, the cattle, the herds. Everything is just laid up in abundance. But what good is it when Babylon's going to come take it all? What good is it that we have produced all of this wealth we have produced all of this prosperity, but at the end of the day, the world takes it. Our children don't get to really enjoy it because of the behavior of our pride that would go on in our life. And so very simply, what I want to narrow this down to this morning 
is I want to talk about the treasure that's in your house. The treasure that's in your house. The treasure that would be in the house of First New Testament Church. What is the treasure that's in our house? What's in the treasure of your house as a husband, as a mother, as children? And people would come and they would inquire of you, hey, show us your treasures. Show us what you have. Tell me about your church. Tell me about your home. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your life. Hey, USA, tell me about your nation. Tell me about your treasure. And we would point them to our military. We would point them to our our weapons, our, our atomic bombs, our, our nuclear energy, our, what we would say would be our wealth, our infrastructure, our cities, our streets, our, our, our people. And we would say this, the brave American spirit, you know, that we're, we're trying now in this world today to try to rebuild America back upon the, the, the strength of American people as though that's what made us great, but that's what we point to. And so when these men came to see Hezekiah, the Bible says, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, I I showed them everything. I showed them the treasures of my house, but Hezekiah never showed them the temple. He never showed them God. He never showed them the means by which they were great. He didn't pass up the gold and the silver and the treasures and the cattle and the spices and the ointments as maybe all of Babylon would be ooing and aahing at all of these things. And Hezekiah's taken them by the hand, if you will, through his kingdom. And they're kind of like looking at this armory and they're saying, wow, what great military strength. And And Hezekiah says, oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. Don't worry about that. That, That's not important. Wait wait a minute, Hezekiah. Look look at this gold over here and the silver. Hezekiah, oh, that's nothing. I want to show you my real treasure. I want to show you what's precious to the house of Israel, what's precious to me. Come with me. Pass all of that up. Those things perish. That's not why we're great. That's not why we're strong. That's why we're not mighty. Forget all of that. If we had it, Great. If we don't have it, doesn't change anything because of our real treasure. Come with me to the temple. Come look at our God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Look at this God that we serve, the God who lives in the midst of us, the sacrifices that we make to him and the promises that he's made to us. This is why Israel's great. And if he would have shown them that treasure, I believe Isaiah would have had a different word for Hezekiah. Because you showed them the temple, because you pointed them to our God, it caused Babylon to tremble in their boots that they would dare take on a nation whose God was so mighty. But that's not what he did. Hezekiah was supposed to be dead, but he lives because God was merciful. The church is supposed to be dead. For the last 2,000 years, the most incredible satanic strategies have been waged against the church of Jesus Christ. These strategies were supposed to take us out. We're supposed to be done. We're supposed to tuck our tails and run. 
We're supposed to live inside the four walls of our church and not take our faith to the streets and to politics and to school systems. We're supposed to be through. We're supposed to bow to the woke culture. We're supposed to be intimidated and live in a spirit of fear. And just when we're about to crumble, God, the Holy Ghost, begins to revive His church and we live. And the churches try to turn it into prosperity. We appeal to the eye of the public. Politicians want our endorsements because of the money that's in the church, because of the people that's in the church, because of the numbers of Christians that supposedly are in the United States of America, and I need your vote. And they look at us as though we're successful and we're powerful and we show them our wealth and we show them everything. We, we show them our people and our money and our finances and our prosperous churches. And we crumble and we fall in the next generation or even our own generation. Because the only reason the church is the church and the church is strong and the church can live is because of Jesus Christ, our God. He's our treasure. He's our treasure. And when people say, you know, show me the treasure of your house, what do we show them? We show them our music teams. We show them our worship teams. We show them our music. We show them our preachers. We show them the dynamics of our youth. We show them the the, the ability and the oratory skills of modern day evangelists. We tell them how many people attend. We tell them how much money we take in and say, this is why the church is so great. And that's what, that's what we do in America. That's how we define greatness. You sit around with a group of preachers and they say, tell me about your church. We immediately begin to struggle with the numbers to try to make the church a little bit bigger than it actually is. Because that's what makes us successful and strong and powerful. Or we try to explain the fact that we're doing well financially and we're doing okay and because that's our success. But our success is God. Take the people away and God is God. Take the money away and God is God. God is the strength and the treasure of the church. And would to God, and I pray to God, he will be our treasure. I pray to God that God will be the treasure of First New Testament Church. I pray to God that if anybody were to say, tell me about your church, you'd just say, God is there. God, what, what, what else matters? God is there. I was corrected this week. I, I told everybody Sunday we were going to have a special guest Friday night. It was fun. The whole week was fun. People were like, hey, who is it? I think it's this. I think it's them. I think it's, you know, a female. I think it's going to be this, that. And everybody's like trying to figure it out. And then you had the, the other people. Like, oh, come on, you know who it is. It's going to be Jesus, you know, and, and all of that. And so we have the prayer meeting, you know. And I even had some people come up to me afterwards and say, who is the special guest? And I said, you didn't see me. He was here all night. And, and Matt Abood, as only Matt can do, said, wait a minute. Jesus is here all the time. He's not a guest. And I'm like, okay, I'm corrected. I'm corrected. And bless my heart so much that, that, you know, people that have a better awareness than me just say, no, he's not a guest here. You know, praise God. It's his. This is his. 
And we want him to be the greatness of the house and the power of the house. So what would you show? What would you show show in your home, in your family, in your marriage, in your relationship? The presence of God alone changes things. The presence of God changes people. We have to see that in America, if not in other parts of the world where we have churches everywhere. We have 400,000 churches in America, evangelical churches in America, 400,000. And America is being lost faster than we can even imagine. Power of darkness that is falling upon this country at a rate that seems to be irreversible. A church that wants to bury its head in the sand and not try to come to the realization that America is in judgment. And if the church will respond to God, then there's hope and salvation in the Lord. It's the presence of God. I said this to you before that Moses, when he was a prince in Egypt, he knew that he belonged to the God of Abraham. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews even says that Moses knew Christ as a prince in Egypt. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Moses was willing to forsake the wealth and the riches of Egypt for the reproach of Christ. And he ends up murdering a man, and he ends up fleeing into the desert, and for 40 years he's wandering around with sheep. And then this one day, he has an encounter with God. Now he had his theology all right. Everything was there, but he has this encounter with God, and that experience of God's presence changed his life. He was never the same again. His tomorrows will be completely different. Than his yesterdays. Same thing happened to Job. When God came in the whirlwind. And spoke to Job. And he had to put his hands over his mouth. And he said. I had so many questions. But my eyes have seen holy. I've got, I've got nothing to say. You're just righteous. And you're just. And you're good. All of these people that want to question God. How could a God of love. One look at him. You're going to fall on your face. And say you were right. You were right. You were good. You were just. You were righteous. The apostles, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It was the presence of God that changed everything. And I want to just bring you to this, if you will. I want to give you two scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I I just want want to point this to you. And I pray that we will take this to our hearts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent love, charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. But above everything else have love. Above everything else. Have the kind of love that will cover one another's sins. And I believe that's one of the greatest demonstrations of Jesus in our life. It's not how well you love the righteous. Now listen to me carefully. But it's how well you love the righteous who have fallen. Because 
It seems to be very easy for us as Christians to love the lost who don't know God. And it's very easy for us to love the saved that walk so well with God. But those individuals, all of us, if we were honest, who get tripped up into temptation and sometimes fall in those skirmishes that we're in, we find it very hard to love them. And Jesus said that in the last days, the love of many is going to wax cold. Just a frustration that sweeps over the church of Jesus Christ so that the love of God is not authentic and real. Second Timothy chapter three, this is the last scripture I'm going to. But in Paul's letter to his son in the faith. He gives him this end times warning. And I believe this is in relation to the church, not the world. The world has always been like this from the beginning of time. The shock factor is that this is the way the church is going to be in the last days. This is what's going to characterize his house. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Very selfish. Everything's about me. I'm offended. I'm out of here. A lack of love doesn't leave. It doesn't leave. God never turned his back on you. When that, when, when that rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Lord, what do I have to do to inherit king, eternal life? And he said, I've done all these things and I've been good and I've kept all the commandments. Jesus said, take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor and you shall be rich towards God. He turned and left. Jesus was still facing him. Love never fails. Something the Lord put in my spirit a long time ago. He would rather die on a cross for you than live forever without you. Even as a sinner. He wants to put your sins away. And I just want that to have, I want that to kind of be the love that's in our life. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, covenant breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And so I want to put these two things together. Peter's warning and admonition in the last days. And Paul's warning to Timothy about the characterization of the church in the last days. And there's going to be a real lack of love. In the body of Christ. It's going to be very hostile in the body of Christ. Very selfish. Very brutal. Gossip and slander. People abusing one another. People who want their own pleasure more than they even want God's pleasure. In other words, I want my way in the church more than I want God's way in the church. And that's what's going to begin to characterize the church. And I believe that the key issue here 
is because they will have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. It's not a lack of religion in the last days. It's not a lack of spirituality in the last days. It is a lack of the power of God. The power of God is not in it. But it seems like so many want to be godly and practice to be godly and work to be godly. And when you practice godliness without the power of God, the only thing that can be created is Pharisees. Who will kill the life of Jesus every time they see it. They will put, because it threatens them and it threatens their way of life. And so in this particular passage of scripture that Peter and both Paul are warning us of, it is the presence of God. The power of God is God. It's God the Holy Ghost. It's the power, the life of the Holy Spirit within the believer. That's the power of God. It's intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God in our life. So listen to me for just a moment. And I don't have the time to go through the scriptures with this, but you can, you can check this out. This is in the book of Exodus and Moses is leading the children of Israel into the promise. They're out of Egypt now and Israel is stiff-necked and they're rebellious and they are disobeying the Lord and they're murmuring and they're complaining and they're grumbling. All of these things are going on and they just created this idol Aaron made that they've been dancing before this calf, which represented Baal, who delivered us from the Egyptians. And God sees it while Moses is with God in the mountain. God sees it. And Moses goes down and exercises grace. He breaks the commandments. He destroys the idol. He burns it, he crushes it, he throws it into the river to get rid of all of the evidence. And he goes up to Aaron, he said, God was coming to kill you. I stood in the way for you. I interceded for you so God would give you mercy. These were the things that were going on. And then Moses goes back to God. And God says to Moses, I'm not going with you. This is a stiff-necked people. It's a rebellious people. I will not go with you. I'm going to give you an angel. And and this angel is going to do many things for you. This angel is going to give you prosperity. This angel is going to bring you into your promise. This angel is going to work miracles. And this angel is going to fight your battles. And I would probably say that the majority of churches, if God were to make a deal with them like that, they'd say... That's awesome. That would be fabulous. And could you imagine the evangelism? I mean, we get an angel just appears every Sunday. You, you, you got this big bright cherub just descends and stands right there. And he's just like, all right, I'm here to do miracles. I'm here to give you your promise. I'm here to bless you and give you prosperity. God sent me. You imagine what we would be doing. We would be running through the schools, through the politicians, through the malls. You got to come to church with us. We've got an angel that's coming. I mean, every Sunday this angel appears. But every day of our life, God appears. And we rarely get excited about God. We rarely want to run out there and say, you got to meet this God who has met every need in my life. But Moses says to God, no deal. 
Mm -mm. I'm not going without you. I'm not doing this. And he says to God, there's something that you can give us that this angel cannot. And I cannot be apart from you. Moses said, and listen, because it's the same for us. Moses said that the, the one thing that makes us unique, different from every religion that is in the world, different from every spiritualism that is in the world, the one thing that makes us unique is the presence of God. That's the only thing. Nothing else makes us different. And Moses said to God, the angel may do all of that, but only you can give us grace. How will anybody know that we found grace in your sight if you are not with us? And then he said, only you can give us rest. And only your presence makes us holy. And the angel can't do that. I cannot live apart from you. And I ask that about your life, your home, your personal life. Those of you here that have churches, I ask you about that. Is that the characterization of your, of your life in your church. And somebody comes in. Some politician. Whining and dining you. Manipulating you. Because you're a, a pastor. And wants to you know, ride your coattails. To get votes. Or whatever it might be. Tell me about your church. Jesus. Well, well tell me. How many people you got come. Jesus. Jesus. How much money. Jesus. That's all I got. All I got is Jesus. That's, that's who I have. That's what we have. And from day to day, I don't know what the money's going to be. And I don't know who's going to be there and who's not going to be there. Because church today is a revolving door. door. But Jesus is going to be there. That's my treasure. That's my treasure. And oh, the people of God that would know that. Purpose of God's presence. So God and Moses have this exchange when they first meet. And God is telling Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to tell the Egyptians that, and the children of Israel that the God of Abraham met with you. He said, who do I tell sent me? And you said, you tell them I am sent you. And then he said this, how will they know? How will they know? And God said, God says this. It, it mattered to God. His, his presence, God's presence is not on accident. It matters to God. And God said to Moses, so they will know that I met with you. Because my encounters with you are not cheap. And my encounters with you are on purpose. And when I meet with you, I want the world to know that I met with you. And I'm going to do something significant through your life. So that the world knows that we had a meeting together. 
God does this miracle with Moses. He throws the rod on the ground. It's no longer Moses' rod. It's the rod of God. God's going to work through a dead stick. And an 80-year-old man, God's going to make the mightiest nation on earth bow before him. He's going to break them. Because all you need is God. And a stick is nothing, but a stick in the hand of God is invincible. Yeah, they know we've been to church. They know you went to church. You go to work Monday? Yeah, I know you were at church Sunday. But do they know that you really met with God? So what if you went to church? What is that doing for our world? Did you meet the presence? Did the presence of God affect you? And you might wonder, how does the presence of God affect me with a supernatural life? The presence of God will affect you with a supernatural life. And before your mind begins to wander and stray into all sorts of Dreams of what that supernatural life may look like. Could I just tell you the simple elements of that supernatural life is a supernatural love? Kind of love that Peter talked about that covers the multitude of sin. The kind of love that is willing to sit down with sinners and even prodigals and, and, and be willing to smell like a pig yourself. With the, with the watching world of religion pointing its fingers at you. Because you're a compromiser. When actually what you're doing is trying to rescue a soul from death. And bring them to Jesus Christ. It's that kind of supernatural forgiveness. That we humanly cannot get past because of the awful things that have been done to us. It's that supernatural work of God and wonders of God and miracles of God that will happen through our life because God is with us. I mean, God is with us. Dear God, let it not be a phrase we say, but let there be the evidence of it. The problem with the Pharisees was not a lack of religion. It was the failure to recognize the presence of Jesus Christ. And who he was. And to allow the presence of Jesus Christ to absolutely affect him. I wanted to play this video. If we can darken the lights. I just came across some of this. We've been hearing some of these things that are going on. But I think there's a supernatural element in this. This is what's happening on the Auburn University campus. Well, tonight right we now. hear from Auburn University students who witnessed something rather unique on campus, a Christian revival. Yeah, last night a worship service spiraled into an impromptu baptism event, which has now gone viral on social media. WSFA 12 News reporter Brady Talbert looks at how it all started in this report, new at 10. <laughs> Auburn University senior Michael Floyd says he will never forget what he witnessed on campus Tuesday night. I've seen Auburn basketball beat Kentucky. I've seen um, Auburn football beat Alabama. But I have never seen something like I did on Tuesday night. Thousands packed Neville Arena for a night of worship. 
When it was ending, one student wanted to be baptized. But without a tub, crowds started gathering at this lake at Auburn's Red Barn, where roughly 200 people gave their life to Christ. Even head football coach Hugh Freeze got in the water to help. And that's just a message of unity saying when you're a part of the body of Christ, you're never alone. Everyone was so just excited and joyful. Kristen Carr is a student journalist who watched it all play out. Her video shows the crowd cheering every time someone resurfaced, something she hasn't seen before. Never in my life. I mean, I was even talking to adults who were there that were a part of it, and they said that they had never witnessed anything like that. And to think this all started because of a worship event. It's being called Unite Auburn. The woman behind this event says it began with just five girls meeting each week to pray in the arena, which grew to 200 students, which caught the eye of local ministries. Who said, we, we want to get behind this. We, we, you know, we want to see this. I wanted this to... Um, I wanted to point this out to you. Five girls met with God. And you cannot deny that they did not enter God's presence. That's the kind of thing that happens when people enter God's presence. Now, don't think it's in, in the quality of thousands or people. But something happens in you that affects the lives of other people. There's something in you because you've met with God that ignites a, a faith in another person that, that makes them, I want to love Jesus more. I want to be closer to Jesus. I want to adore him. There, 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 is a, there, there is a unashamed devotion and passion that ignites your heart that is willing to go against the entire world if you have to. To openly and publicly love Jesus Christ. Carl, if you come up. There's, a, there's an etching. On an iron grate. Behind the Circus Maximus in Rome. It is gated off. For its historical significance. So that people can't go and touch it. And wear it down over the centuries. It's believed to be approximately 2,000 years old. It's the body of a man. Who's crucified. But with the head of a, of a donkey. Because everybody in the entire Roman Empire. Believed that only scum. Make it to a cross. The filth, the worst, the ugliest of people get crucified. And so in this etching of this body of a man crucified with the head of a donkey, there's an etching in the picture that says Alexander worships this God. And when I came across that story years and years ago, it burned in me that I want to be so close to God that regardless of what anybody else does, regardless of what anybody else says, because Jesus is becoming increasingly unpopular, I would love for them to be able to walk around Baton Rouge and say, Lee Ship, 
loves this God. And if I could be known for anything, and if this church could be known for anything, that we love this God. And it is only Him that we long for. Beloved, the greatest, the greatest gift we could ever be given is to be with God. And it's not just a future hope, it's a present reality. He's here today. <clears throat> Peel back the layers. Let him in. He'll transform everything. One of the girls on this video, she said, attractive young lady, I'm sure she's probably seen many things, probably been to a lot of parties, a lot of bars, a lot of things like that. Every, all, all of the things that the world can offer you, right? And she says, I have never experienced in all of my life this kind of joy. You don't have that without God's presence. Because in religion, without God, it's not joyful. And John wrote in his epistle, I'm writing all these things to you, beloved, so that you can fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father. And we're writing this to you so that your joy may be full. Your joy. You will never know a more fulfilling joy in all of your life than what God is supernaturally loving through you forgiving through you ministering through you sometimes in ways you don't even know we're going to take a couple of minutes and close Call is going to minister a song to us I'm just going to invite you to pray search your heart again seek the presence of God seek the presence of God in your home what's great about your home what's great about your life well we got a, lot, a big bank account it's going to take us through some tough days you never know